It is a very special edition of the Capital Golf Gang, United States Open style. The great Brian Tyler, composer of the new theme song for the U.S. Open. We've got a special format this week as well here on the Capital Golf Gang. Just a twosome, well, threesome. Myself, John Ronas, and John Gould. We're going to play a full eight front nine with Mr. Ronis, back nine with Mr. Ghoul. With that, we say hello and welcome to John Ronis, Director of Instruction and the Director of Golf at River Creek. Good afternoon, Mr. Ronis. How are you? Soak in the majestic tones of Brian Tyler's score for the U.S. Open. I like it. I hadn't heard it yet, so I'm very happy with that. <laughs> Haven't heard it yet. It's been the new theme song for, I think, five or six years. Where have you been? Yeah, well, maybe I have heard it. Ah, okay. Anyway, all right. Here we are, United States Open, Brookline Country Club. This The Country Club. Sorry, The Country Club yeah. in Brookline, Massachusetts. That is a yeah. terrible, unforced error off the first tee by yours truly. Yes, <laughs> it is just simply... The Country Club. Now, I got to ask you, you've played it. Yes. Hole, no, hole number one on this 18-hole edition of the Capital Golf Gang. How would you describe the Country Club to someone who's a golfer who has never set foot on it nor played it as you have been lucky enough to do? Well, <clears throat> interestingly enough, it is, it's, a, it's a conglomeration of the property for the U.S. Open, they have the um, they have the, the 18 holes that the membership plays on a on a daily basis, and then they mix in a couple of what they call the primrose um, for their for their U.S. Open. I think they still they do that. Um, so it, it is a, so it is a mixed layout. It's a 36 yeah. hole country club. I think it's 27. Um, I think the primrose is nine holes. Okay, um, and and they mix them. It's a brutal test of golf. I can tell you that. It's a brutal test. Got a lot of elevation change. Um, it's got fescue all over the place. It's got it's got rocks. It's got uh, ledges. It, it, it's a brutal test, and that's why I said earlier in the season that I didn't think Tiger would would walk this place because one one bad step and you could easily just twist an ankle. Um, so and it is a it's a long golf course. It's a hard golf course. A lot of elevated shots to greens. Um, it, it's it's a it's a great golf course. Um, but it's hard. Designed by Willie Campbell in 1895, redone by Reese Jones in 1988. It has not seen a United States Open since Curtis Strange won it in the late 80s. But of course, the last time we got to see it was the infamous Ryder Cup in 1999. And I will never forget seeing rock outcroppings on some holes and the dramatic alleys and shoots and plunging fairways that accompanied a otherwise sort of traditional parkland northeast course it's magnificent looking on tv yeah and it's changed as far as the um the structure of how they they kind of uh frame the fairways and things with again some different native grasses and things like that but um yeah it's it's i was there in 88 Certainly was there in 88 with those uh, huge binocular things, those telescope things. They were all over the place. They were the big thing at that time. Um, 
uh, me and a couple of high school buddies were there for 88, and then I was not there for the Ryder Cup in right. 99. Why did it take so long to get back there? Any idea? I'm not sure. I, I don't. I really don't know. I think they probably just had a bunch of courses that they had to get to. And I thought the hundredth. When was the hundredth U.S. Open? I thought. I thought they'd come back to the Country Club for that. Uh, um, yeah. Well, they did not. So uh, I'd have to yeah. look that up. All right. Hole number two. How karmic is it that with all the live stuff going on, that the Open lands here at this historic spot where the legend of amateur Francis we met from across the street wins the Open in an 18-hole playoff against two of the titans of the age, Harry, uh, Harry Varden and Ted Ray, in yeah. a game, in a, in a match that would be made into a movie. More on that in just a second. But it really launched the popularity in the early 20th century or 21st, what, 20th century. It yeah. launched the popularity of golf in the early 20th century in the United States because an American had defeated two of the great Brits in the game. And, you know, don't forget, it's the U.S. Open. So the, the paths in which people get to play in the U.S. Open is, is varied. You know, there's amateurs playing it, there's professionals, there are people who are exempt, there are people who qualify. And um, that, that basically, you know, again, that was a David and Goliath situation um, where it was almost laughable at the time, not to mention his caddy, who was about three feet tall. Right. And, you know, those are the kind of things that, that make the U.S. Open uh, how special it is because, uh, again, it is a true open championship where uh, theoretically, theoretically, anyone could qualify for it. Yeah, it was. So a, it's, cool. it, it's an open event, which is the antithesis of the LIV Tour, which is a closed circuit invitation mm -hmm. only and for the top players not just invitation but here here's a mountain of money to come play yeah. this tour it could not be more of a polar opposite and so i think sometimes i wonder are we living in a simulation john is the universe winking at us that this is all happening this major upheaval to the future course of the game of golf at such an iconic place that also changed the game of golf, although in a positive way, 115 years ago? Yeah, of course. Of course it is. There's, there's always, you know, there's karma out there, too. And, um, you know, if karma comes back, then the PGA Tour will be what the PGA Tour has always been. And, frankly, people will be playing golf for the reasons that they started playing in the first place, which is for the love of the game and the competition and the camaraderie, not for the money. Yeah. Uh, and I have a lot of views on this. Oh, we're going to get to that. We're going to get to yeah. that. We're only through the second hole here. By the way, <laughs> the uh, the 2000 Open uh, at Pebble Beach was the 100th. So okay. I should okay. know this. It syncs up perfectly. So we are on the 122nd playing of the United States Open. Okay. Okay. Got it. Hole number three. While we're talking about that historic moment at the country club, did you see the movie The Greatest Game Ever Played? With, I Sh I know. with Shia LaBeouf before he went crazy. And yeah. what did, well, <laughs> you didn't see it, so you don't have an opinion on it. Can I've I seen pieces. Okay. I've seen pieces, yeah. I, I don't urge anyone to see a movie because it then predisposes them to not like it if it's not up to speed, and they're like, ah, I can't believe you told me to watch this movie. I really like the movie. I think yeah, I've heard only great things. I, I just think they did such a good job with a hard cinematic subject, golf, 
which is a game we love, but let's be honest, it's still a niche thing amongst the general populace. And it had moments in there where it really captured the essence of, my God, what must it have been like back in the day with all the cocky players uh, from across uh, the pond who were just sort of like, we're here to win the U.S. Open again because we invented the game and we're better than any American. And then a kid ends up beating them. And I know the story of Francis we met quite well growing up there. And also, I was a Francis we met scholar. So I was given the Francis we met scholarship award. Yeah, my senior year of high school. My goodness. Um, What did that get? What did that get you? Did that get you a ride at UConn? that give it gave you a a a good chunk of cash that's for sure um <laughs> it was it was it was very nice it was a huge huge honor in the area um it it honored you know it was multiple people um each year but it honored a huge array of of people in people who have who just had, had con- contributed to the game it was a caddy scholarship um or in my case it was just a little bit more of a notable player um, that kind of situation, but, uh, it was a huge honor to be a, a Francis. We met scholar. I still write a check every year to give to that scholarship nice. fund because it is outstanding and it really gets a lot of, um, youth to, to go on and, 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 and go on to college, whether they're playing golf or not. So it's, it's a great thing. So in doing that and, and, and winning the award, you know, you want to learn about, uh, where this all came from. So uh, I learned a, a good amount about Francis. We met and it, it's truly is an amazing story. Yeah. And we met's father disapproved greatly yeah. of his son playing the game because we met's father was a just a common laborer and worked yeah. his ass off for very little money and he saw the game as frivolous and not an avenue to actually sustain and 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 basically afford a family and be the breadwinner yeah. uh in the household and that brings us to hole number four what do you think is going on in phil mickelson's head right now because you contrast the disapproval with why we met's father didn't like his son playing the game with the obscene wealth that Mickelson is now landed after what is likely another pile of obscene, of obscene wealth that he may have gambled away during his career. Yeah, I mean, my my views on this are that, you know, he talked in his interview, I listened to his entire interview at the U.S. Open, and... Um, he talked a lot about some things that he's working on in therapy and things like that. And he's still continuing to lie to himself because the only reason that he's going to the live tour is for money. I have no problem with that, but please, please in this day and age, tell me that that's the reason that you're going. Maybe it's a scheduling is a little bit easier, but it's purely cash. I have no I don't have to agree or disagree with anyone's decision. That's up to them entirely. But what I have to have is respect for that person and just being honest. And he is just not being honest. I would have no problem if he came out and said, you know what? It's just too much money for me to pass by at this point in my career. So I'm taking the money. You know what? I don't have to agree with you, Phil, but I respect that you're at least honest. Yeah, that's a very well said point. I think uh, you know, on the Golf Channel, uh, they were talking about how he didn't sound confident. He was halting. He was he – was, stuttering he was back try used the same words over and over again as crutches like respect and mm-hmm. Chambly just said it he goes he couldn't sell it because it's it's hard to sell a lie and that's what he exactly was so just tell sell. the truth right just, just tell, tell the, the truth the just truth. say i'm here for the money and i i have put money over 
a so-called moral compass, whether you want to believe or not, in, in the moral compass of what they do and their relations with people and everything else. I have put money over that and loyalty. Yeah. There is no loyalty to right. anything that he's done with the PGA Tour, which is why I respect Jay Monahan so much. And you know that I, I grew up working. I worked with Jay when we were kids. And the fact is I know where he came from, and he puts loyalty over everything. So yeah. that's why he, I, I guarantee, is so pissed about the whole thing. Did you happen to see John Rahm's comments today on this No, because I was thinking about that. Okay. Go ahead. No, I was thinking about it because he's become tight with Mickelson. And it'll be interesting to hear. I, don't, I did not hear his words. I'd like to hear what he said. Okay. I'm going to find him for you. I thought I had him handy here. But John Rahm, who is, he went to school at Arizona State like Mickelson, right? So he yep. is educated in our fine uh, American uh, higher education university system. John Rahm at his age was far more eloquent than Phil Mickelson when it came to, you know, basically laying out his decision-making on why he wanted to stay with the PGA Tour. Yeah, because it's honest. It's easy to talk. When you're honest about what you're saying, when you keep on having to track back and say, wait a second, did I lie about this? Did I lie about that? Did I lie about this? It's really hard. Here was but wrong. when you're honest, yeah. Here was wrong. it's easy. Take a listen. I do see the appeal that other people see towards the live golf. Um, I do see some of the, how do I put this delicately, uh, points or arguments they can make towards why they prefer it. Uh, to be honest, part of the format is not really appealing to me. Shotgun three days to me is not a golf tournament, no cut. It's that simple. Uh, I want to play against the best in the world in a format that's been going on for hundreds of years, right? So that's what I want to see. And yeah, money is great, but when Kelly and I, was, this first thing happened, we, we started talking about it. We're like, will our lifestyle change if I got 400 million? No, it will not change one bit. Truth be told, I could retire right now with what I've made and I've lived a very happy life and not play golf again. So uh, I've never really played the game of golf for monetary reasons. I play for the, for the love of the game and I want to play against the best in the world. I've always been interested in history and legacy. And right now the PGA Tour has that. There's, there's a meaning when you win the Memorial Championship. There's a meaning when you win Arnold Palmer's event at Bay Hill. There's a meaning when you win LA, Torrey, some of these historic venues. And that, to me, matters a lot, right? Uh, I have, you know, after this winning this, this past U.S. Open, you know, only me and Tiger have won at Torrey Pines, and we're both the golf course that we like, making putts on the 18th hole, right? That's a memory I'm going to have forever that not many people can say. So uh, my heart is with the PGA Tour. That's all I can say. It's not my business or my character ju to judge anybody who, who thinks otherwise. Uh, and for a lot of people, I'm not going to lie, those next three, four years are worth basically their, their retirement plan they're giving them. It's a, it's a very nice compensation to then retire and sail off to the sunset. Wow. Good for him. How about Good for him. that? Yep. All I just, I love the, I love the fact that he stood there and he said, it's not my place to judge because it's no one's place to judge, but it is people's place to determine if they're going to respect someone's decision or sure. if they're not. Sure. And and when they were talking about the fans with Mickelson, and you know, do you, do you are you worried that fans are going to go away? Again, it was just a stammering back and forth. I've given a lot back, 
blah, blah, blah. Well, you know what? Again, it's not our point to judge, but it's your position to have to live with it and just be honest with your fans, which he can't. Yeah. By the way, did he give us a tell that the price they pushed under his nose was indeed? $400 million. I don't think that was inaccurate. I think that oh. might have been an Easter egg now that I think about it. If Phil at 51 is worth 200 a young John Rahm, who is – is he number one in the world or number two now? I don't know. He's right up uh, there. Yeah, I think he's two behind Justin Thomas if, probably. If the price of Tiger was $900 million, allegedly, I think Rom slots in right at four hundred million. I think. Oh, guaranteed. It was. I think he accidentally <laughs> slipped that out and didn't think yeah, about it. I think it's great. All right, hole number four. Yeah. What do you? Th- uh, hole number five. Excuse me. Does the U.S. Open truly identify the best players in golf, or just the players that week that are playing the best? Uh, I think it's. I think it's the players that week. I mean, just the the the, the fact that it's so penal for one part of the game, which is primarily driving the ball uh, because of the rough. Um, you know, they have had some greens that, that traditionally have gotten out of hand. But, you know, I, I truly believe it's really the person who plays the best that week that wins any tournament. But um, certainly you can't get away with being a poor driver of the ball at the U.S. Open. So, um, yeah, I think it's, you know, it, yeah. it, give or take either way. I, look, it's a great tournament. And as long as they keep from, you know, pulling the Shinnecock and, and having the greens right. rolling at 21, then they'll be fine. <laughs> having to syringe the greens in between <laughs> groups just to keep yeah. them from bursting in the flames. That was one of the low <laughs> moments in the yeah. USGA's existence. All right, yeah. hole number six. If there had to be a single five- or six-course rota of U.S. Open venues, what would they be? I'll start us out by saying you have to have Pebble and you have to have Pinehurst number two. So we're really down to, let's say, yep. three or four other courses. What would yeah, they Yeah, you know, I, I like the, the, the Oakmont, Oak Hill um, as one of them. One of those, Oakmont or Oak okay. Hill. Um, I think that's a great place. And, um, you know, I probably, Shinnecock? if I was going to go. Um, I'm not a bit, I played Shinnecock. I'm not a big fan of it, but yeah, it's right. a great golf course, Beth, but I Beth page? Beth page. Yes. Okay. Yes. I put Beth so, page area and it covers the public aspect of it as well. So does Pebble beach. All right. So Beth page Oakmont. Now we've got one more to play with or two more to play with. We have to hit something in the Midwest. Even yeah, though the so Medina, Medina. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Something like that. Or uh, Hazel yeah. team. Yeah. No. Yeah. Medina. No, okay, I've never been there. Okay. Medina, yeah. Medina, okay. okay. Do we have one more, John? One more somewhere <sighs> where it wouldn't be a billion degrees in June. Total blasphemy here, I know. Okay. I know it's total blasphemy, Chambers but a Bay. place like a Chambers Bay, yeah. <laughs> Shut your mouth. Yeah, We're never going yeah. back to that dump, that quarry I pit. know, I know, but it was very stimulating to the viewership. Plus, I love West Coast oh, U.S. Oh, Opens oh, that oh, are ending oh, at 10 o'clock. Oh, hold on, I forgot, Olympic. That's it. We got okay. It. All right, cool. Olympic, Olympic. Yeah. Uh, Olympic uh, what did I say? Olympic, Medina, Pebble. Oh yeah, Olympic, uh, Pebble, Medina, Oak, Beth Page, Oakmont. Yep, that's there it. You go. That's five. Okay. Yep. Uh, well, I thought we had six. What did I miss there? Well, you Somewhere said five. Like... Well, we had Oak. We had... we had Oak Hill too in there. We also had. Uh, we also we could in theory do Riviera, but I don't know. Nah, By the way, nah. they're going to L.A. Country Club in a couple of years, which should be really awesome. Yeah, All right, cool. hole number seven. 
what would you rate or how would you rate the USGA as an organization just over the last 10 years? Just as an organization, it's an outstanding organization as an organization. How have they done in the last 10 years? Very good. Very good. They've, they've, they, they're getting um, better, wouldn't you say? I think they're very improving. Very much so. They're, they're yeah, more self-aware. Yes, the handicap yeah. systems, and also yeah. with this, you know, with this crown jewel event, you know, they finally got rid of the stupid Monday eighteen-hole playoff. Yep. It's not nineteen forty-two, and there's television concerns and everything else. Volunteers up the wazoo. You can't send people home. And go okay. Well, we'll see who wins tomorrow. You're going to be at work, so that's good. Yep. Um, what else? And again, well, I think they've, they've gotten better at, at running their golf tournaments. I think they've, they've gone out and gotten, um, a place like a Chambers Bay. Look, it's a risk, but a Chambers Bay and a Beth Page and a Harding Park. Them? Chambers no, Bay? No, I'm not. No, Stop. but I'm talking about, they were looking at something like that that would be stimulating okay. to the viewership. So they were looking outside the box. It's real easy sure. to just say, I'm going to play at this course, but. Um, the stimulating uh, uh, to the viewer, I think, is very, very important to keep people watching because it's such a brutal uh, tournament that we don't you know, want to sit there and watch bogey, par, bogey, par. You want birdies, usually, the, the, the uneducated yeah. golfer, right? right? But if you don't have anything else stimulating to look at and you're just looking at these guys struggle, uh, sometimes they will get a little boring. Yeah, uh, we missed Wingfoot, by the way. That might have to be in the road. Yeah, Wingfoot's gonna, a good one. Yeah. We're going to tighten that up uh, as we go here. Hole <laughs> number eight. What did you make of the incredible scenes and the incredible golf at the Canadian Open last week? They had gone dark for two full years at yeah. their National Open because of COVID restrictions, and Rory McIlroy absolutely nailed it for the tour when they needed it the most. What'd you make of it? Love, love, you know, we both love Rory. That's the first thing. So it wouldn't have mattered if that was a John Deere. (laughs) Rory wins. It's great. Right. Again, national opens. That's what it comes down to. That's what we're talking about here today. When you're dealing with the the Open Championship and the U.S. Open and the Canadian Open, even though it's kind of a weak sister, it's an Open Championship that people take pride in uh, performing at their best at. And the country comes to support that event. Uh, It's outstanding. It's outstanding. Yeah. All of them are outstanding. And the fact that the fans sort of bum-rushed the 18th green like it was an old-school yeah. British Open was great. The normally well, reserved and polite Canadians, eh? I loved it. Look, they're happy them. to be out of the house, too. <laughs> yes. I mean, they were locked Big time. up. They were really yeah. locked up up there. Hole number nine. U.S. Open or Masters. You can only win one as a player. Go ahead. Pick it. For me, it's a Masters because it's that lifetime exemption back and the Champions Dinner and and all the history in the same course every single year. Um, But shoot, I would take any of them. (laughs) All right, final thoughts. We're at the turn. You get a hot dog and a Coke. Last thoughts as we head towards the U.S. Open this weekend. Well, I get a hot dog and a Coke at the turn at the Country Club, which is just a baby little shack that just sticks the hot dogs in there in the tinfoil and you grab the tinfoil and the hot dog, and you grab a packet of mustard and a Coke out of the refrigerator, and that's all you get. There's no people. Really? There's nothing. Absolutely. Really? And wow. it is old school. So that's what I'm grabbing at the turn. I have no thoughts. I hope we have a great U.S. Open. And I hope, I, I honestly hope that we just flourish now for the rest of the season and get this uh, crap out of our, out of our <laughs> rearview mirror 
of this stupid live tour. Okay, very good. John Rodas, director of golf at uh, uh, at River Creek in Leesburg. Thank you very much, my friend. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you, Zach. See you. We'll be back with the back nine on this week's edition of the Capital Golf Gang, presented by Golfdom in Tyson's Corner. John Gould from the Middle Atlantic PGA is next. And we are back on the Capital Golf Gang U.S. Open Preview Edition. I know that if you're listening on WJFK on a Saturday morning, you're like, how come you're not giving any updated scores? We're already halfway through this thing. Well, we tape earlier in the week. We'll have a full recap next week. But we're playing a full 18 today. You heard John Ronas play the front nine, the tricky but fair front nine of my U.S. Open course. John Gould, the executive director of the Middle Atlantic PGA will play the treacherous back nine. Good afternoon, Mr. Gould. How are you? I'm well. Thanks, Abe. Hope are you well. ready for the challenge, my friend? Uh, I, I hope I can I can handle it, yes. <laughs> so you, too, have Boston roots. Explain them to people. And have you been lucky enough to either play or have you been to the country club? Uh, well, yeah. So I uh, grew up in Bristol, Rhode Island. My dad uh, worked for IBM and worked up there for a while. And my earliest memories are there. Even my, my dad, uh, who's now passed, was a Yankees fan and Giants fan. He somehow let me grow up to be a Red Sox and Patriots oh, fan. Oh, my goodness. So those were wonderful times up there. Yes. And I went to the Ryder Cup at Brookline. Uh, great story. Maybe not so great. Uh, I was there uh, two weeks after ankle surgery. Uh, and uh, so I was on crutches. And uh, actually, the first time I stepped on the property, Phil Mickelson almost hit me. Uh, the fairway we came in and the ball bounced about three feet from me while I'm in crutches. And it was just so much trouble to get back and forth uh, on the golf course, you know, in crutches that Saturday we were way behind. And my wife and I said, you know what, let's just try instead of staying since, uh, since it's hard for me to get around. So we missed the great comeback at the Ryder Cup. Wow. So you did not go on Sunday. Correct. Yeah, but I well, made it home in time to watch the end. Well, <laughs> you was... know, right, which was incredible. And, I mean, look, it was such a madhouse that even the yep. able-bodied would have been scrambling and running and craning yep. one's neck to try to get a glimpse of the action. It was truly – I think it's the greatest golf day on television in the history of golf. I remember being glued to my TV set in a hotel room outside of Bristol, Connecticut, because I was doing weekends at ESPN Radio, and they wow, would put me yeah. up in a hotel, and I sat there in that hotel room, and I was just mesmerized. Amazing. Yeah, the emotion of that day, you know, you know, as I, you know, I had, you know, I was there with uh, eight or ten people, and they they all stayed, and, you know, were just telling me about the emotion of that day that I missed, but yeah. 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 All right, we, here we go. Back nine, hole number ten. If you were the head of the USGA, what would keep you up at night as you came up and prepared for this event? Well, certainly if I was an operations guy, it would be the course getting away, right? You know, they've had so much trouble with that. They always pride themselves on taking the golf course to the edge, whether it's the greens or the fairways or the, the rough, you know, uh, being long, whatever it is. 
and certainly, you know, they have let it get away in the past. Uh, so that would always be my concern if I was an operator, uh, you know, for the USGA on that. And then probably, you know, on the marketing side, uh, you know, if, a, if one of the live guys wins, right, you know, you, it takes away the the uh, talk about the U.S. Open and identifying the best golfer, and it just brings that whole conversation back to the forefront, which is at the USGA, you don't, you could really, literally could not care less about, right? You're the USGA, the FPGA Tour. They're not part of that conversation necessarily. Uh, so you would, you would, you would probably want to make sure that one of the live guys doesn't win. Would the weather keep you up, or do you accept that as a tournament organizer saying it yeah, is going to be know, what it is? It, it, correct. I think, I think it's that, you know, we, we deal with it on such a uh, uh, micro level here at the at, at mid-Atlantic section, and, and we're dealing with that all the time. And and I remember talking to Kerry Haig uh, at one of the PGA Championships. Who, you know, Kerry Haig is the uh, senior director for tournaments, our chief championships officer now for the PGA. And that was exactly his thing. There's just literally nothing you can do about the weather. So we got plenty of stuff to worry about. That just can't be one of them. All right. Hole number 11. Many people are saying the PGA Tour got caught flat-footed by the Live Tour and their launch and that they should have done more to be prepared. Is that a fair criticism, or do you think the PGA Tour simply caught an unplayable lie with the amount of money that was going to be backing this thing? You know, I actually uh, lean towards the unplayable lie. You know, I I mean, I'm thinking, you know, the, the whole Live controversy and the players leaving kind of has, you know, three components, right? You got the moral question, you got the competitive issues, you know, it's only 48 players, all that stuff. But the third one and the one that they could not prepare for and they'll never be able to prepare for is the um, uh, outrageous amount of money that the Saudis have and then are offering with, hey, they're not worrying about a budget. They're not worrying about return on investment. They're just dumping money. And, you know, I, I just don't think that's possible to, you know, if they would have, if they could have, and I don't know that they could have or not, said, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna, pay more in our purses we're going to double our purses if they could afford it which i don't think they could well then the saudis would just say okay well we're, we're doubling ours and then they're right. just as big of a uh you know a gap so i i really just don't think there was anything they could do now there was plenty of things they could have done to make their players more loyal to them uh that you know some of the some of the players who have left have brought up uh but you know, in terms of the money, there's, it's a it's a limitless wealth. So I don't see how you think you can compete with that. Yeah, I think for the most part, they got caught with an unplayable lie. And it's not like yeah. they were doing nothing. I mean, they initiated the whole player impact program, and they shoved $50 million out the back door and had several of the guys that got that money leave anyway. So they right. knew this threat was coming. I think the only thing that they might regret is that they let their players, they gave them a release to play in this new Saudi Invitational last year in a horse swap of, okay, if you go play there, you got to promise to play Pebble, which I think right. it was opposite, two of the next three years. And that might have given, given a subtle signal to the players of, you know what, they may not follow through if we end up joining this new tour. Well, and it kind of also, you know, if there was any question of the moral uh, obligation, right? You know that that goes out the window too. If you say, okay, well, you can do it, you know, you can play in the in, in that event. So what's wrong with playing in eight events if you can allow them to play for one? Yeah, you know, and they did. They also helped. You know, they they made the 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 purse for the the uh, PGA. I mean, excuse me, the uh, Tour Championship and the uh, players, uh, the players uh, much more, which caused the the majors to raise their 
uh, purses for those. Right. You know, the PGA Championship was, I think, $3 million more than it was last year just because of the pressure on, uh, you know, the upward pressure from those events. So they were they did something. But to your right, to your point, you know, there's just no way. Even if they could they could improve everything by $5 million, every purse by $5 million, the Saudis would just do it by ten. right? Yeah. There's just unlimited money. Yeah. So The other thing, too, is I think about this, John. If, if the Live Tour really was able to start draining the best players, then there'd be so many players wanting to come over that they would feel incredible pressure to increase their field size, which is right. defeating the purpose because the guys – that went over there, liked it for the small fields and the guaranteed money. So it's right. almost like, you know, one of those Chinese finger traps where the harder you pull, the more stuck you're going to get. Yeah. Yeah. We still have a lot of questions, I think, about about the Live Tour in terms of, you know, so, you know, Patrick Reed and and, and uh, DeChambeau come over. All right. Who are the two lucky losers that get knocked out of the 48? And what happens to them? <laughs> right. If, well, they I'd got, start if they with, got, I'd start with Andy Ogletree because he shot 24 over, over three probably. rounds. <laughs> Probably, but if he got guaranteed money, does he still get it? Was it a per tournament guarantee? We don't know any of those details. Yeah, right? that's it's true. interesting. Yeah. All right, hole number twelve. How cool is it that they are turning Francis Wemet's house across the street from I forget what number hole it is, but across the street into a literal museum? Yeah, I caught that that feature, and uh, that I mean, on a cool meter of one to a hundred, it's one hundred and two. I mean, it's yeah. that's pretty awesome. Uh, and I think uh, the club members basically did it and paid for it, and they're gonna they're gonna turn it over to the club. Uh, you know, it's not ready yet, apparently, in a couple right. of weeks. What I thought was really cool is you can rent it out, oh, so you can stay in that house while you're playing at the country club. God. That would be sweet. That is incredible. I'm trying to think now. What would be the most iconic places to sleep before playing iconic courses? That would be one. Well, the, crow's the crow's nest, nest. at yeah. Augusta would be another. I yep. believe you could sleep in old Tom Morris's flat above 18 at St. Andrews. I believe it's currently residing. I, I believe that his granddaughter or great, 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 great granddaughter, I don't know how many years removed, is currently right. in it, but yeah, we should put a list of that together. What do you think? Yeah, and and there's probably and just endless number of uh, old school country club clubhouses that have a dozen rooms on the top floor. Oh, you know, yeah. I'm thinking like Shinnecock Congressional has, I think, 24 rooms. Uh, you know, in, in the building, all, all those are pretty cool. Where you just wake up and you go downstairs and you play golf. That, oh, whoa, whoa. that's pretty cool. Well, Congressional has a hotel in it. I didn't even know this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've it's been good, there a million times. I had no idea they had hotel rooms there. Is this some secret? Yeah, <laughs> yeah is that, maybe I should have said that yeah. on the radio. No, I'm, <laughs> I, uh, it's, I don't think it's a secret, but right. I have stayed there, and it's awesome. Well, now I have a new life goal to try to uh, achieve right. and unlock. All right, hole number 14. Or excuse me, hole number 13. When Justin Leonard sunk that putt, which you were not there for because your leg was broken and you couldn't <laughs> hobble around anymore, but when Justin yep. Leonard sunk that putt, was the celebration by Team USA out of line? Well, I'm going to say no, probably because I'm an American. But, uh, you know, and, and people need to remember, there was still a putt to have. Uh, and I forget uh, what the, who the player was uh, on the European side. I think it was uh, Alazabal. Yes. But, but my whole take on this is that is exactly what we want out of our team sports, especially golf, because it's kind of a reserved individual sport, but that unbridled passion and enthusiasm, that's exactly what we want from these type events. So to say that was poor sportsmanship or we shouldn't do it. 
you know, I think just defeats the purpose. If, if he just walks over and nods his head and shakes his hand, it means they don't care. And, and you know, why would we, we care about watching the Ryder Cup? Uh, so, you know, that's really hard for me. I mean, uh, was were they too close to the line of, of a loss of ball or did anybody spike marks? You know, the Europeans, part of the question. The Europeans claimed that they trampled all over Ollie's line. That is not true. Now, there's right. not a lot of good camera angles of the aftermath, believe it or not. Uh, so you kind of only got one shot of it. But the, the players and the caddies and the wives – they all ran down the side of the green, and nobody was actually cutting across the green to get in Ollie's way. Here was the audio of the infamous putts. Oh, nice. It goes up over this ridge in the green, and then only about four paces to the hole once it's on top of that ridge. Tough putt to get the speed right on, John. Winner can somehow win this hole. The matches are over. The great Dick Enberg with the call that I thought day. I, I thought I heard the oh my there. Yeah, yeah, perfect. yeah, that was it right there. Okay, we move on. Back nine, special 18-hole uh, edition of the Capital Golf Gang presented by Golfdom. Uh, this week, it's a preview edition. Hole number 14. As good as that was, I think Tiger at Pebble Beach beating Rocco Mediate and sinking that putt on the 72nd hole and pumping his fists and looking to the sky – and then forging it out on 18 or on, on Monday, playing 18 more holes, actually 19 more holes, right? To finally win with a fracture in his leg. I believe that U.S. Open is the best televised U.S. Open ever. What would be number two? Well, first of all, I don't think that was at Pebble Beach. That was in San oh, sorry. Diego. Sorry, right? I just Tory Pines, Tory Pines, Tory yeah. Pines, Tory yeah, yeah, Pines. Yeah, yeah. I'm making bogeys left and right here uh, <laughs> on this edition. So well, it was at Torrey Pines, s- yes. Yep. And 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 how would you rate it? Well, it, it was up there. I mean, especially for it's people number of our one. generation. I think it's number one. Let's pick number two is what I, my question was. Well, see, the, the funny thing is because when you said Pebble, I thought maybe you were talking about his blowout win um, at Pebble. Well, that's a, you know, um, that's a, I had not considered that. Because Which was it, exciting. Yes. But I'm still. But I'm going to stay with Pebble and go to my childhood uh, and I told you before, I was uh, I was a homer for Tom Watson growing up. 1982, the chip in at Pebble uh, yeah. on 17. That was probably, I mean, that was probably ABC. I don't know who was doing the U.S. Open at the time, uh, but that was not watching all 18 holes, but it was televised, right. and that chip in was iconic. And you know, the run around the part of the green or, or the edge of the green there. Um, that has to be – well, that's certainly my number two. There's been some great playoffs, right, the playoff at Oakmont right. uh, that Ernie Els won. But that was a three-way playoff, right? That was – who was that? It was Lauren was Roberts, Lauren Roberts Colin Montgomery. and Colin Montgomery, and it was yep. hot as blazes. You're certainly, you're certainly not going to say when Steve Jones won no. the U.S. Open at uh, Oakland Hills in 1996. Correct. I don't Correct. think I remember a darn thing about that. Who did he beat? I think he beat um, – I wish Wikipedia would have this. Oh, here it is, right here. here. Uh, you ready? You want to take a guess at who he beat? Uh, VJ Singh. Uh, your answer is Tom Lehman and Davis Love. Oh, yeah. Beat him by a shot. They were he was minus two. Lehman and Love were minus one. Okay, we move on. Hole number fifteen. Give me a teaser, John, of where the U.S. Open might want to think 
about going in the future that might be new, off the beaten path, perhaps a bit controversial. Talk to me. Well, you know, everything I gather uh, from where the U.S. Open is heading is exactly opposite of what you're saying, right? It's all traditional. They're calling them anchor clubs. They've got them scheduled out to 2051. You know, you get this every 17 years kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, Pebble and certainly, you know, Pinehurst, Oakmont, all those things. But I was thinking about, you know, what if the if the U.S. Open, not that they're hurting for TV, uh, you know, uh, popularity or anything like that. Uh, there are some great brand new, I would say, I don't know, exclusive golf courses in the Midwest that would be a great target and would be great. I, I you know, I, I, what I don't know is their logistics for, you know, merchandise tents and, and, uh, and all the hospitality and all that stuff. But, you know, something in places like Sand Hills in Nebraska and Prairie Dunes in Kansas. Interesting, and, yeah. You know, Big Cedar Lodge and the Ozarks, you know, those things would be kind of cool, but I have no idea. Uh, this, this, I'm, I'm speaking really uh, no blind problem. here because. Here, I'm going to no, give, I, you, I'm gonna give yeah. you where they're scheduled to go because you're right. They have filled in. And, and what they have to do is avoid the Chambers Bay situation where they go to a brand new place and everybody hates it. Right? Well, they, they have awarded dates to certain places, uh, four or five dates. They even have 2051. Yeah. On the books for Oakland Hills in yeah. Michigan, which is just mind-boggling to me. But yep. uh, they've got next year L.A. Country Club. They're only yep. one date set for that. They want to see how it goes. Then in 2024, Pinehurst gets the first of their next five dates. Yeah, they just built an office yeah. in Pinehurst. 29, 35, 41, and 47. Then they go back to Oakmont in 25. And they go three more times in 33, 42, and 49. They go to Shinnecock on a one-off in 26, but they may add more. They They'll go always to, go back. They go yep. to Pebble in 27 and then have three more dates lined up, 32, 37, 44. They go back to Marion in 2030. I'm excited for that, but it's a one-off. And then in 2034, they go to Oakland Hills and they give them one more date in 2051. So... You can go figure yeah, so, out which dates are open right now. but Yeah, they're all old traditional courses. And what's interesting to me, what I don't understand, is that some of them are every five years and some are every seven years and every eight, you know. So it, it's not going to be a true rotation like the like the British or anything like that, but you can see that that's the direction they're going. And by the way, all these, you know, the, the USGA, the PGA, everybody who moves their event around, they love going to the West Coast, right, because you can have primetime golf, right. you know, 9 and 10 o'clock. Uh, on the East Coast, that we're we're sitting around watching golf, and and to be honest, we love it, right? I love watching, oh, you yeah, know, watch great. golf that late. Um, so the West Coast, uh, you know, so, is- so Midwest and West Coast is what I would think, just for you know the you know the the TV and, and pull for it. Yeah, I think the West Coast best for TV. I think the Midwest might be best for the fans, and I'd say the East yep. is the best for tradition. So they're definitely spreading it around. Okay, hole number sixteen. The U.S. Open qualifying process is needlessly cumbersome, way too big, and complicated. Change my mind, as the kids like to say. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think the, the USJ always crows about it's the People's Open, and they try to get they they uh, they want to see how close they get to ten thousand applications, ten thousand entries for making the Open. That's I think it was their, ninety. That's their goal. Three open. 
I, I think so. I mean, I don't know if they say, hey, 10,000 is the number, but they want, they love saying that number. I mean, it's 9,200, 9,300 I was going right to say now. what they get about 9,200. And to uh, even enter in the lowest level of the qualifying process, you have to be a 1.2 handicap or better or something uh, like that? 1.4 is an amateur, okay. but – or a professional. And what happens is you get some Joe Schmo who it, just it, says, I'm a pro – I, I, I shoot 80, 85, 90, but I'm a pro today, and oh that's legit. And they get in there, and they, and, and they you know, gum up the work. So that's certainly a, a low percentage, but a percentage of the 9,300. 9, so I guess what I'm saying is, though, that, that's the number, right? It's, it's close to 10,000 people, and I'm sorry, but there ain't no uncomplicated way to get right. 9,300 down to 144 or 156, whatever the number is. Yeah. And that's not counting the exemptions. Uh, so it's probably, you know, I don't know how many exemptions they have roughly, but it's probably about 50. So you got to get 9,300 down to about a hundred. Uh, and that's a lot of locals. They get, you know, they get entries from all 50 States and international uh, countries. That's the way they love it. Yeah. That's the way they want to do it. So, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to get from that big of a number to that small of a number, well, you got to do a couple levels like we do with the local and the sectional qualifiers, and it's going to be complicated. Yeah. It's uh, it's like the American Idol tryouts uh, for golf. You're, you're going to get a, a William Hung in there at some point who just you laugh at and go, come on, bro, right. what are you doing? And the good thing is, though, they do take into account talent, right? Like the, the tour qualifiers don't get the same prorated number that, you know, the qualifier at, at Woodmont that we have every year. Right. Right. That, that used to be the tour qualifier when, yeah. when the camper was the, the week before the, or two weeks before the open. Um, so they take that into account. You know, they can say, Hey, instead of, uh, if it was a 10% rate, you know, if there's a uh, hundred people, 10 get in, which is a, probably sounds too high, mm-hmm. probably less than that. Uh, you know, at the tour qualifier, it's, you know, 18 or 20 people get in if, if there were a hundred players. Right. Hole number 17, how big would it be for a Japanese or Korean-born player to win the U.S. Open? They scratched off the Masters last year with Hideki yep. Matsuyama. How big would it be for a player uh, from those countries to win our Open? Uh, it would be massive, right? I mean, I, I, the only thing I can think of when when I saw that question was Sayri Pack, right? And yeah. um, when she won the U.S. Women's Open, she was pretty young, you know, first or second year out on the tour. And uh, I think that was late 90s. And I, I read some stat, and, and I can't remember, uh, you know, what the number was, but like 10 years after she won, the LPGA Tour's number one revenue source was South Korean TV money. That was number one. Wow. And, and you know, if the PGA Tour is looking like, hey, we got we to gotta get more revenue so we can compete with Live More, well, that would be one way. They already get it. I'm sure they already get a decent number uh, from Japan and South Korea for PGA Tour rights. But if they had a legit contender, contender that was in it every week, or had just won the U.S. Open and was the new big star, I mean, they, both countries, Japan and South Korea, love their sports heroes. So if mm-hmm. they had somebody that had conquered the U.S. Open, uh, which is one of the events that's rarely won by by uh, someone from outside the U.S., man, it would be yep. huge. Why Yang won the PGA Championship up at yep. uh, uh, Hazeltine? Valhalla. Oh, yeah, that's right. Hazeltine, yeah. so Korean. And then um, Colin Morikawa is half Ameri- he's half Chinese but born in America. So there's a right. little glancing blow for the Open Championship. Uh, but the U.S. Open at this point has not had a winner for that, and it'd be fun to see. And I think there's quite a yep. few players in the field this week that could do it. Hole number 18, last question. The cardboard periscopes with the old mirrors in them at the U.S. Opens, you see – 
on the old film on ESPN Classic were either completely idiotic or actually kind of genius. You tell me. Well, as a vertically challenged individual, uh, <laughs> I I am definitely going to go with genius. Now, nowadays we think, well, shoot, if that's if you got to watch it through that contraption, why don't I just stay home, and watch the TV, and have my beer and have my my uh, my snacks uh, right next to me? Uh, but you know, I I don't know, I can't. I've been to a lot of golf events in my life, and and there's been a lot of times where there's a dude right in front of me that's massive, and so I just got to move. Yeah. Right. So uh, so. I think it was kind of genius. It was, you know, it was a, you know, it's a different time where technology was not so great, and and now all we do is see people's arms up with their phones. So, <laughs> I know it's unbelievable. You know, I mean, <laughs> times have changed, but uh, the dynamic remains the same. John, a pleasure Correct. as always to chat this week. Enjoy the U.S. Open. Enjoy Father's Day, and we'll talk next week. Thanks, sir. There you, you too. And that will do it for this week's edition of the Capital Golf Gang, presented by Golfdom and Tyson's Corner. Sorry we couldn't get Ron Thomas on this week. He'll be back next week. I hope every father out there enjoys the U.S. Open this weekend. And trust me, the golf will take center stage and wash over everything that has gone on earlier in the week. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. Enjoy the greatest game ever played, the game of golf. And we will see you next week on the Capital Golf Game.